Welcome to Plodcast, episode 17. I think it's 17. Pretty sure it's 17. So, um, as I'm recording this, uh, we are just a few days after the uh, tragic shooting at the Texas church. And I wanted to uh, talk for a little bit about some of the implications of that shooting, not for gun control and not for the typical uh, issues that such events usually stir up. But rather, I wanted to talk about the implications of events like that for apologetics in the realm of apologetics. So how does that, how does that make sense? Well, the uh, shooter in this case was a, an open atheist, a, um, an avowed atheist, a militant atheist, and he went into a church and he shot up a bunch of Christians at worship. So you have a stark contrast. You have Christians worshiping God, and you have an atheist who comes in with a gun and shoots and kills uh, 26 of them at the last count. Now, the issue here is not, oh, look at the Christians doing a nice thing and look at the atheist doing an evil thing, because anybody who is at all familiar with human history, church history, knows that there have been occasions where professing Christians have done evil things and um, professing Christians have participated in slaughters and massacres and, and so on. So my point is not that an atheist did a bad thing, see, atheism is false, or uh, the Christians were doing a good thing, so see, Christianity is true. What I wanted to, what I want to point out is uh, who is being consistent in this, all right? What, what is, not, not what does your position make you do, but what does your position allow you to do? What does your position allow for? So if I live next door to an atheist, um, I do not believe, as, as, and I'm a professing Christian and he's a professing atheist, uh, I wouldn't have any problem if I go on vacation asking him to watch my house for me and to take in the paper and you know, do, do the sorts of things that you ask a neighbor to do. I don't believe that his atheism would in any way force him, once I'm uh, down the street and around the corner, to run over and burn my house down. I don't believe that his atheism mandates that. That's not the issue. The issue is not what his atheism mandates, but rather what his atheism allows. In this Texas shooting, what you have is someone who was a militant online atheist, uh, a ranter, someone who was, uh, uh, you know, thought Christians were stupid and and uh, rails on them and does all these things. And then he tops it all off by going into a house of worship and, and murdering a bunch of them. Then he's pursued and at the end of that pursuit apparently takes his own life. Uh, same sort of thing happened in the Las Vegas shooting, although there you, I don't know that the man was an atheist, but he, he perpetrates this carnage and then he takes his own life. Now, if atheism is true, if the materialistic view of uh, the cosmos is right and that all we have is time and chance acting on matter, all we are is atoms banging around, then someone who shoots the church up like that, runs down the road, and then takes his own life, 
thinks the, the moment before he pulls the trigger, the moment before he commits suicide, he thinks something like, I got away with it. I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I expressed my hatred. And now I'm going to end it all. And I'm going to enter into pure, utter nothingness. Now, if atheism is the case, then that line of reasoning is true. If atheism is the case, then those thoughts that he had, uh, I have escaped justice, I have escaped the law, I am entering into nothingness. I'm entering into that state of non-being that every human being enters into when they die. He has the same fate awaiting him as does Attila the Hun and Stalin and Mother Teresa and George Whitfield and George Washington the lights go out, someone hits the switch, and it's all done. That means that for him, there is no justice. So he does a radically unjust thing. He does a, a radically wicked thing. And then he drives down the road and successfully escapes into the bliss of nothingness. He escapes into the bliss of nothingness. Now, what that means is this, if it's possible to escape justice, finally, completely, and ultimately, then that must mean there is no such thing as justice. Let me say that again. If it is possible to escape justice, then at the end of the day, there's no such thing. If it is true that a man can go out in a hail of gunfire, killing a bunch of innocent people, and then take his own life, and that is it for him, and there's no punishment, no afterlife, no evaluation of his deeds, no, um, uh, no day of judgment, no heaven, no hell. Well, I, can, I can't speak it any more uh, directly than John Lennon did. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us. Just imagine all you have is a small country church and a shooter and a car and a getaway and he pulls the trigger and no justice. He pulls the trigger and it's all done. He pulls the trigger and he got he he succeeded in what he wanted to do. So what are the implications? The implications are that there is no justice, that justice is a farce. It and that so basically you can't have someone escape from justice at the end and not have corrosive effects of that getaway. Um, work their way back upstream. And that means that there's no such thing as evil. If you can perpetrate gross evil and then get away with it, then that must mean that there's no such thing as gross evil. That must mean that there's no such thing. Now, again, the issue is not, this is an important thing to emphasize. I am not saying that atheism is false because atheists do bad things. Because if that line of reasoning were true, uh, then we'd have to say Christianity is false if you find a certain number of Christians doing bad things. The point is that when Christians do bad things, they are being radically inconsistent with what they profess to believe. In other words, a Christian who is guilty of great wickedness, Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor, someone who is uh, uh, operating that way, he is fundamentally at odds 
with the faith, with the worldview, with the religion, with the theology that he professes. But the, uh, the person, the atheist who is doing this, is not radically inconsistent with anything. He's not contradicting anything. What tenet of atheism did this atheist violate? Well, you might answer, well, there are atheists that don't do those things, that don't do these wicked acts. Sure, suit yourself. If you're an atheist, you can decide to get along with your neighbors. If you're an atheist, you can decide to shoot them all. If you're an atheist, you can decide whatever you want, and none of it is inconsistent. What holy book do the atheists have that, that would reveal that this atheist who shot these people and then took his own life did anything wrong? There's nothing wrong with what he did, given, the assum- given his premises. Given his assumptions, there is nothing whatever wrong with what he did. The one, the Christianized atheist, let us say, the civilized atheist, the uh, moderately respectable atheist, is wanting to live in accordance with, a, with uh, Christian convictions, uh, with, with Christian standards, and say, see, I can do this and be an atheist. Well, certainly you can. Uh, we, just watched, we just watched you do it. It reminds me of uh, Mark Twain's joke where he was asked one time if he believed in infant baptism. He said, believe in it? Why, why I've seen it done. So, do I believe that atheists can be moral? Well, yeah, I've seen it done. Uh, do I believe that atheists can obey the law and be decent law-abiding uh, citizens? Yeah, I've seen it done. But I've also seen the opposite done, and there is nothing additionally inconsistent with someone who goes out in a blaze of gunfire than with someone who just lives a modest, quiet, respectable life. So that's the Texas shooting and how it relates to atheism. This man who did it was an atheist, and the problem was not his atheist. Well, the problem was not that his atheism made him do it. The problem was that his atheism did not prohibit him doing it. So, here in Plodcast, we like to review books, and what I want to do um, uh, this segment is talk about a book by René Girard. I've read a bunch of Girard's books, and he has had um, a significant impact on me, but I always have to talk about Girard with a qualifier. I always want to uh, qualify my um, enthusiasm, qualify my, my support for much of what he says with a warning up front and a warning at the tail end. Um, hardcore Girardians, people who are all in with Girard, um, f- are following the dictum that if one's good, two's better, or when you first find a, uh, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if you, if you get Girard's key insight, the temptation for, many, for Girard himself and, and for many Girardians is to run it out to the nth degree. And... And so I just want to warn everybody, I think that that is a misreading of his own insight. I think it's a misapplication of his own insight. At the end of the day, if you are a strict uh, all-in Girardian, you wind up having to deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You have to wind up denying the reality of propitiation, the reality of um, God's wrath being poured out on on Jesus for our sins. Uh, Girard holds that the atonement was simply God unveiling or revealing to us the true nature of violence 
and now that we see it, we are set free. And uh, he doesn't see uh, Christ as a true sacrificial atonement. I also think that um, Girardian insights taken to the nth degree will wind you, uh, will land you in various forms of uh, radical pacifism and so forth. And I think that that's just a, a misapplication of what I think is a robust insight and uh, and a very helpful insight if you keep it within biblical bounds, if you keep it uh, constrained by the revelation of Scripture. The Bible plainly teaches propitiation. The Bible plainly teaches that, that Jesus died under the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the substitutionary atonement is, a, is axiomatic for me. Um, the lawfulness of warfare is axiomatic for me. There, there are times when men must be executed. There are times that men must be evil men, must be killed in warfare. It's not always scapegoating. It's not always some sort of um, uh, wicked misdirection. That said... I want to talk about a particular book um, by Gerard that I thought was helpful, and that was his, um, his book on Job. Uh, so Job, uh, the subtitle is Victim of His People. Job, Victim of His People, um, is filled with all kinds of radical insights. So I want to begin by pointing a few things out about it. There's some things uh, about this book that I don't like in, in his uh, his treatment of the prologue of, of Job, and uh, so I'm, I'm not signing off on everything. But here's the basic, uh, the basic setup that I found very helpful. Uh, in the Old Testament, we, we find that the second king of Edom was a man named Jobab, um, which I think is a variation on Job's name. I think that Job, at the very least, we're told in the book of Job that he was uh, a, a very wealthy man among his people. He lived in the land of Uz. We we can piece uh, things together and realize that the land of Uz is in the region of Edom. And then you have this other statement that Jobab, uh, the second king, is the second king of Edom. So I take um, I take um, Job as being a descendant of Esau, as one of the early kings of. Edom, which was the nation descended from Esau, and uh, and at the very least, he was a great prince among his people, a great great and wealthy man. What that means is that uh, when Job was ruined, that it was not a matter of one individual having a bad year in the stock market. When Job was ruined, it was the sort of thing where uh, it entailed other people. Other, other people were affected by the calamity. And if you've read much of Gerard, and if, you, if you've applied his insights to ancient history, you know that, uh, for example, something goes radically terribly wrong, as, uh, um, as it did in Thebes. And so Oedipus, the ruler, is confronted with his, his um, responsibility for it. So what happens in there's a sacrificial crisis, some disaster, military disaster, or there's a plague, or there's internal strife, or something that can't be fixed. And so the soothsayer or the prophet or somebody comes in and says, Oedipus, the problem here is that you killed your father and you married your mother. Other than that, everything's fine, but that's what you have to do. Then the victim, the designated victim, the scapegoat has to join in 
the accusation. He has to become a self-accuser. And this is deep. This is something that's part of the deep structure of, um, of the human race. You, you can see it in Stalinist show trials. It's crucial in totalitarian societies that if you accuse the bad guy, if you, uh, if you go after the bad guy, he has to become a self-accuser. He has to accuse himself. Well, uh, that's what Oedipus does. He's, he's asked to take one for the team, which he does. He blinds himself, and then he goes into exile, etc. Well, uh, what Gerard is saying is that you have a remarkably similar setup in the book of Job. Here you have a prince of the people, or perhaps the king of the people, who is ruined, financially ruined, everything. And so other people are caught up in the cataclysm. And then, uh, on this scenario, the, Job's three comforters are, shall we say, members of his cabinet. They are uh, people who have come to tell Job that it's time for him to accuse himself. It's time for him to go along with the game. It's time for Job to take one for the team so that the disaster that befell Job and, and everybody else is something that they can expunge from the community. They, he, can, he can accuse himself uh, and then uh, uh, accept the penalty, and then the people are spared. Job, in other words, has to become, uh, has to be scapegoated. Job has to um, accept his guilt, accept his complicity. He has to confess his fault. He has to confess his sin. And this is something that Job absolutely refuses to do. And that, explain, help, that helps explain the consternation of uh, his three counselors. This never happens. In the, in the old pagan system, in the in the way these ancient societies operated, the way unbelieving societies operated, when the when you have the designated victim is appointed, it's time for him to go and time for him to go quietly. He must accuse himself. He must admit the justice of the uh, accusation. He must accept it. He must take it all upon himself and go. And you see the radical difference between the biblical outlook, the biblical mindset, and the pagan mindset by comparing Oedipus and Job. So like I said, there are some things that uh, are not consistent with an, in, uh, uh, an inerrantist approach to Scripture. Uh, Gerard is certainly not that. He, doesn't, he feels uh, free to differ with the text where it doesn't, doesn't fit with his theory. But at the same time, uh, his insights here uh, are a remarkable key in helping to unlock the book of Job. All right, so one of the things we do here on podcast is we are working through uh, all the different words in the New Testament describing various sins or sinful conditions. And we come now to heretikos, heretikos, which is the word for heretic. We get the word heretic from this word. And so it's obviously related to our earlier discussion of heresis or heresy. So heresy is one thing, a heretic is another. Heretikos is used only once in the New Testament, and that one place is in Titus 3.10. Now, in that place, we are told that a man who is a heretic should be rejected after two admonitions or warnings. Now, the natural question here is whether the word heretic refers to a false teacher or to a sectarian. 
Remember when we were talking about uh, heresy, uh, the early use of the word simply meant faction or party. Um, so the, the Pharisees were a heresy, not saying their doctrine was false, but they were a faction. They were, um, they were a group or a party. Um, uh, by the second century AD, heresy took on its modern understanding where the, it, not only did you have a faction off by itself, but you had some distinctively false teaching that helped keep that faction off to itself. So, and in the New Testament, you have uh, both senses operating. So uh, in Titus 3, uh, in Titus 3.10, we're told that a man who's a heretic should be rejected after two admonitions or warnings. So is he being rejected as a purveyor of false teaching, a heretic in the modern sense, or is he simply combative and polemical and a sectarian, someone who, who separates himself because he applies orthodoxy a little bit too strictly, let's say. So it would appear from the context in Titus that it has to be a false teacher, even though he is clearly divisive in his attitude as well. You can see that in the previous verse. In verse 9, he is divisive in his attitude, but it has to involve false teaching. The, the reason it has to involve false teaching is that a sectarian would have already left. You wouldn't have to reject him. Secta uh, sectarians leave. That's what they do. You don't have to reject the sectarian because he's already down the road. But the person who's still within the congregation trying to get a following must be rejected. In other words, the 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 heretikos here, who is to be rejected, is still in your body, he's still in your congregation, and he's still recruiting. Well, he can't be recruiting people to separation because he's not separated. He can't be recruiting to a division. He can, he can be recruiting for an attitudinal division, but everybody is still right there. So if, if Paul says, the person who's still within the congregation trying to get a following has to be rejected. Um, we, are, uh, we are to understand that a heretic subverts because he is subverted, verse 11, and his theological errors are expressly called sin. He obviously knows better because Paul adds that he is self-condemned. So uh, uh, what this person is doing is something that he understands in his own heart of hearts, what he's up to, what he's doing. He, he likes to pretend that uh, that's not what he's doing, but it is. We like to pretend that all of our opinions, whatever they might be, are all arrived at honestly. But the apostle, quite frankly, tells us something quite different here. Um, it is possible to sin with your brain. It's possible to sin with your mind. It's possible to sin with your cleverness. It's possible to sin with your theological sophistication, which turns out on close inspection not to be sophistication at all. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.